Welcome to Cryptic Chronicles. I'm your host, Tim Hacker, and on today's show, we have a compilation of a bunch of different stuff, like the mystical jinn found in mythologies around the world, the devil's tree, famous for its serial killer and terrifying hauntings, then I'm going to talk about a crazy killer cannibal family from medieval Scotland, followed by the legendary ghost tale about the brown lady of Rainham Hall, and last, we're going to talk about the vile vortices. Everyone's heard of the Bermuda Triangle, but do you know it's just one of 12 such anomalous locations across the planet? You are listening to Cryptic Chronicles. The Jinn are born of smokeless fire and pretty much hidden from our physical senses unless they don't want to be. Most people have seen the Disney movie Aladdin, and for the most part, Jinn are pretty much known as genie in the West, associated with fairy tales and Hollywood. Nobody really knows the origins of these supernatural beings, at least mythologically. They have been worshipped by Arabs since ancient times, though. The legend of the jinn has branched off into many different forms and all with their own interpretation. Like a lot of people in modern Islam, for example, may call them purely malicious entities and basically analogous to demons. I was going through some YouTube videos researching about the jinn and there's a lot of new age spiritual groups who've got some interesting ideas on them. But they pretty much say that they're wholly malevolent claiming them to be the source of shadow people and aliens and are basically in opposition to humanity's best interests. There, There's a much bigger picture concerning their history and basically everything about them. It's easy to just sum up everything as evil and put it in a little box, but that's really rarely the case. In pre-Islamic times, the jinn were considered to be wondrous supernatural beings capable of free will, able to do good, evil, and basically anything in between, just like humans. The term was also pretty loose, being applied to various supernatural entities throughout Arabic folklore. However, jinn were never considered gods or immortal. They eat, sleep, breed, and die similar to people just with a ridiculously longer lifespan. All scholars agree that their mythology originated in the Near East and Arabian civilizations. Though the direct culture they spawned from is up for debate. Their earliest accounts state that they were spirits who dwelled in the desert or other unclean places and mostly took on the form of animals. The jinn were said to inspire poets and artists and basically just creative types, similar to how the muses do in Greek mythology. The jinn also had unique personalities with individual desires just like humans. And if they got pissed off, they were capable of doing some pretty messed up stuff. They could cause mental illness, disease, and conflict. With some going so far as to claim that madness was actually caused by jinn possession. Considered mostly to stick to their own kind, superstition of the past states that they made feared places their home. Such as desolate dark areas with little human traffic. In the old legends, they didn't want to interact with humans in anyway basically our entire like organic nature was just alien to them i guess but despite such an enigmatic origin concerning the legend of the jinn 
they would go on to have a place in the mythology of many mainstream religions throughout history. In Islamic theology, the jinn are invisible entities that walk the earth long before humans. They're classified as entities undetectable by human sense organs along with angels and other spiritual entities. Angels were made of light, the jinn, fire. Angels were merely instruments of God's will and therefore lacked free will, whereas jinn were created with complete free will to do as they please. They lived back on earth when it was still young with many jinn nations and tribes in a flourishing pre-human civilization. Or I should say civilizations, because the Jinn were pretty opposed to each other and did not get along. Many Jinn chose corruption over virtue, willingly committing horrendous deeds upon one another. One day, Allah sent an army of angels to battle them in an apocalyptic confrontation, which basically destroyed their civilizations. After the war between the supernatural entities, the Jinn were driven out from the hospitable lands of Earth to islands, the sea, and desolate locations. For this reason, the Jim would basically have a permanent grudge against humanity because they once had dominion over Earth and are pretty pissed that it was given over to us. The Jim were defeated and banished, but there was one among them that chose righteousness and never followed in his kin's sinful ways. The Jim's name was Iblis, whom was so pure and righteous he was allowed to walk freely among the angels of heaven. Iblis worshipped Allah with all his heart, showing the height of virtue the jinn had always been capable of. But when Allah made humans out of earth, he decided to test the entity. Allah told all heaven to prostrate themselves before the new creation. The angels obviously did so without hesitation because they lack free will. But Iblis refused. Even when Allah directly commanded him to bow, he defied the creator. It was never meant for the beings of heaven to worship humanity. This was just requested by Allah as a sign of respect. Kneeling to humans was to acknowledge their special place in creation and relationship with God. Yet Iblis thought he was superior to humans, thinking us weak and lesser creatures. He wondered how something made of earth could ever be on par with living fire. Jealousy and pride growing within the once righteous jinn. Iblis then asked for eternal life until the end of days, and Allah granted the request for some reason even though Iblis had just defied him. The arrogant Iblis then challenged the creator, swearing an oath in God's might and honor that he shall lead humanity astray. But Allah just merely accepted the challenge, telling Iblis to tempt humans all he wants and that all true servants of the Lord of the Universe would be immune to the influence of the Jinn race. Allah then cursed Iblis for all time until the Day of Judgment, and cast him out of heaven forever. And hence the Jinn are on earth to test the willpower of mortal humans for them to choose good or evil, at least in this mythology of them. But also in Islamic tradition, the Prophet Muhammad was sent to both the Jinn and human communities to spread Allah's message. He told them they were under Allah's judgment just like people and could gain access to heaven or hell depending on how they lived their lives. Also, the Quran's version of Solomon, the ancient king of Israel, was granted dominion over the jinn by God to use their supernatural powers to build the first temple. In the modern Christian Bible, it was demons. 
So the Muslim version of the jinn are pretty distinct, yet still have a lot in common with other cultures' mythologies, such as the jinn being placed parallel to humans just beyond our physical plane of existence. In ancient times, the jinn were incredibly popular in folklore, obviously one of the most well-known being the Arabian Nights and the famous tale of Aladdin, who receives a magic lamp which contains a genie that grants him three wishes. Now, there's many different cultures with folklore about them, or at, at least supernatural entities similar to jinn, such as the three different types of jinn mentioned in the story Maruf the Cobbler. In many of the tales, the protagonist used the jinn to travel across vast distances instantaneously, allowing ancient writers to fill in plot holes with them consistently. In the West, they're analogous to fairy folklore. They're also found in some of the oldest recorded civilizations of Mesopotamia. The ancient Sumerians believed in Pazuzu, whom was made famous by the movie The Exorcist. Pazuzu being a wind jinn with a canine face, bulging eyes, and a scaly body. Even the Babylonians had their own versions of jinn. In Jewish mythology, the Shadim, mentioned in the podcast episode Monster Legends 3, resemble the classic depiction of the Arabian jinn. Similar entities are even found in Buddhism and Hindu traditions as well. And of course, in the case of Christianity, it's a no-brainer they'd be classified as demons. In Guanche mythology of the Canary Islands, there's a similar type of entity too, so there's really no shortage of jinn lore from civilizations all throughout history. Jinn can take on the forms of humans or animals and are capable of dwelling in all conceivable inanimate objects. Hence the legends of the genie in a bottle. These entities vary greatly in levels of power and magical abilities as well as personalities. And though supernatural, they have all the bodily needs analogous to humans, with similar desires and weaknesses, including mortality. They are, however, much less dense and aren't chained by physical limitations, usually appearing as wisps of smoke or humanoid flames in their natural form. The jinn greatly enjoy punishing humans for perceived slights, intentional or not, and are responsible for many outbreaks of disease and horrendous accidents. They're also said to be responsible for many cases of mental illness, being able to easily possess the mind and body of the weak-willed. However, even though the jinn are incredibly powerful, they aren't invincible, and can even be killed. Human beings who know the proper magical procedure can exploit them to their own advantages, in some cases even enslaving them by binding them to worldly items, most of the time being a jar, lamp, or bottle, then be magically compelled to grant three wishes to anyone who sets them free. And when enslaved to grant wishes, many different things can come from such a prospect. It's not just a matter of instantly getting the wishes you want, like, we're used to in our media. For example, depending on the jinn's moral compass, making a wish can either be a huge boon in fortune or a horrible fate worse than death. Jinn can be good, neutral, or evil just like humans, and if the person making a wish doesn't possess the attributes necessary to keep a malevolent jinn in line, then those wishes could be twisted to the point they become dangerous. If the human making the wish has a weak mind or willpower, then the jinn could just outright deny the request as well. Though most of the time, evil jinn will attempt to harm their foolish masters. 
or ruin their lives outright. However, if someone frees the sinister Jin, they can usually be defeated through wits because of their overwhelming arrogance. One simply has to play to their ego and superiority complex, with folk heroes usually tricking evil Jin back into their prisons. Next, we're going to talk a bit about the Devil's Tree. Now, the Devil's Tree is one of the most haunted locations in Florida, USA, despite relatively recent origins. The tale of this cursed tree only grows more and more famous, though, and there is allegedly a lot of occurrences of paranormal activity commonly reported in the area it's located. However, unlike most urban legends, which are mostly myth, the Devil's Tree has a very real, dark, and disturbing history behind it. And till this day, parents tell their children not to go anywhere near it. The true story behind the Devil's Tree began on January 8, 1971, with a cop named Gerard John Schaefer. Police officers may normally be devoted to serving and protecting the public, but not this cop. Gerard was a psycho killer with a badge. Well, actually, he... He was actually an ex-cop at this point, but he still had his old police badge which he used to his advantage. And Gerard was a sadistic and creepy serial killer with an alleged kill count of around 30 people. One night while driving, Gerard came upon two pretty teenage girls hitchhiking through town. Seeing an opportunity to enact his twisted desires, he pulled over his car and showed them his badge, then told them to get in the vehicle. The girls were tricked into thinking he was a real cop and obliged him. The serial killer then brought them to what would later be known as the Devil's Tree. Gerard documented the whole incident in a notebook saying, and I quote, Doing doubles is far more difficult than doing singles. But on the other hand, it also puts one in a position to have twice as much fun. There can be some lively discussions about which of the victims will get killed first. When you have a pair of teenage bimbolinas bound hand and foot and ready for a session with a skinning knife, neither one of the little devils wants to be the one to go first, and they don't mind telling you quickly why their best friend should be the one to die. End quote. Gerard would later go into detail about how he killed the girls, saying stuff like he told the girls to put on blindfolds and they were nervous but did it anyway. It gets pretty dark. He threw ropes around the branches of the devil's tree and tied them around the girls' necks. Occasionally, he'd lift them into the air, choking them, then let them back down to enjoy their begging and pleading for their lives. The girls were gagged, bound, raped, and tortured over an extended amount of time. Gerard basically trying to get as much twisted pleasure as he could from the heinous crime. But eventually he did kill Colette Goodenough and Barbara Ann Wilcox by hanging, both only 19 years old. He then decapitated the girls, but he wasn't done desecrating their bodies just yet. Over the span of 10 days, Gerard returned to the tree to have sex with their headless decomposing corpses. So the sick sociopath was a necrophiliac on top of being a serial killer. It wasn't coincidence Gerard brought the girls to that particular tree, though. He did it for a very direct reason. The ruins of his childhood home were right next to the tree, 
and at the time you could even still see the foundations of the old house. After he was done killing the girls and having sex with their bodies, he left the ropes in the trees so he could return and remind himself of his two favorite kills. About four years later, in 1977, two men going through the woods stumbled upon a pretty gruesome scene. They found the teenage girls decomposing corpses with the deteriorating ropes still swaying in the tree. And it's from this point on that the urban legend really kicked off. For many years, there were reports of hooded figures practicing occult satanic rituals around the tree. In fact, so many of these supposed sightings of these hooded figures were reported that even local law enforcement became unnerved. Anyone who got close to the tree were scared away by these people in the woods, or went missing without a trace. These accounts are even more frightening because there is objective proof of them from legitimately documented cases. Like in 1985, when a couple were romantically involved in the woods, but got freaked out when they noticed hooded figures staring at them. They ran out of the woods half-naked and terrified, but they did escape. In 1992, there was a case where two children narrowly escaped being abducted in the woods. The children very likely narrowly avoiding a horrible fate. In 1993, a pastor, sick of all the devil talk, put a big wooden cross next to the tree and performed an exorcism. But the cross was simply found turned upside down not long after, which is a common satanic symbol. Still, these are just a few examples among many encounters with these enigmatic hooded Satanists. Years later, authorities and local officials, so sick of all the ghost stories and tales of hooded figures in the woods concerning the Devil's Tree, decided to do something about it. Around the year 2000, they decided to turn the area into a park. And obviously, one of the first things to do on the to-do list was to chop down the Devil's Tree. Two workers took chainsaws to the tree, and both the chainsaws mysteriously malfunctioned. Thinking it might have something to do with the bark, one of the workers hacked off a piece of the tree and took it with him. But when the two got in their truck to leave, they immediately suffered a fatal accident and both died. After their deaths, the curse of the devil's tree became part of the legend. Anyone who's in possession of a piece of the tree is jinxed. So people actually started taking pieces of the devil's tree to curse others. Like leaving a piece in someone's car or house to give them misfortune. In 2004, a woman took a piece to curse a friend and almost died in a car accident while leaving. So it's a common saying that if you take a piece of the devil's tree, whatever you do, don't drive around with it in your car. Misfortune will follow the bits of the tree wherever they go. Also, paranormal activity is reported often around the tree, even till this day. Horrifying screams can be heard coming from within the park's restrooms when no one's inside them, and the doors open and slam shut randomly from unseen hands. Cold spots are said to be felt throughout the area pretty much the entire park, with frightening EVPs often being recorded and phantom figures seen in pictures taken around the tree. But the apparitions of the two murdered teenage girls hanging from the devil's tree with ropes around their necks are the most commonly reported ghost sightings. Although shadow people and different types of otherworldly visages are often reported too. 
The Devil's Tree is unique because it's such a recent modern tale, which also has a lot of real-world history behind it. Stuff that actually happened. Don't worry, though. The sick psycho Gerard Schaefer was brought to justice for his horrifying crimes and was also stabbed to death in prison. However, it doesn't look like the legend of the tree will die out anytime soon. If you like horror movies at all, then you're probably familiar with The Hills of Eyes and The Texas Chainsaw Massacre. Or any of the genre, really, of like hillbilly people or wild people in the woods who eat people. But most people don't know that these stories were actually inspired by real-life accounts. Back in the 15th century, there was a family of cave-dwelling cannibals near the beautiful coast of Benin, Scotland. At its height, this clan is said to have been around 48 members strong and was responsible for the murders of a plethora of people unlucky enough to cross their path over the span of 25 years. And their actions have led to tales so dark and disturbing, they've become legendary. The family of cannibals would callously murder any man, woman, or child they came across with no remorse or mercy. It didn't even matter if their victims were alone or in groups, because their numbers were usually too much for any unwary traveler to defend themselves against. The Bean clan would take great care in not leaving any evidence to their presence, staging the deaths to seem like animal attacks or accidents, which is actually what allowed them to commit their wanton butchery for such an extended period of time. It all started with the patriarch, Alexander Bean, whose nickname was Shawnee, and to say he had a harsh upbringing would be a pretty vast understatement. Life was hard in the area he grew up, and for the lower classes to survive, it required harsh daily toil just to get by. He suffered regular beatings from his father for not being good enough, and lived in squalor with little love or affection from anyone. As Alexander grew older, he would attempt to finally please his abusive father by joining him in the workforce to perform manual labor. And like any legend, there's different versions of this tale. Some say he was a landscaper, others he was just a lowly ditch digger. But the lack of opportunities and monotonous work seemed more of a prison to him where others considered it honest work and being a contributing member of society. He also didn't really get along well with others, casually disregarding any rules or any type of authority, and he pretty much rubbed most people he met the wrong way. This led to Alexander being alienated from his peers, and he grew to detest the manual labor expected of him which eventually led to him leaving his home and disappointing his overbearing father for the last time. Alexander traveled to South Ayrshire, where he met a woman named Agnes Douglas, who also had no interest in the toil of slave-like labor available in the area, and was rumored to be a practitioner of black magic. The two really liked each other and hit it off, forming a relationship. But it wasn't long before people began to make accusations towards Agnes. This was back in the times when people really, really hated witchcraft. We're talking burning people at the stake times. So if the accusations against Agnes were true, she was really playing with fire. They called her a witch and proclaimed she had fellowship with demons. The people of the town, even giving her a nickname, 
calling her Black Agnes, the Dark Witch of Lothian. Soon after, the young couple had to escape to the countryside to avoid prosecution and an almost certain death by the mob. Now becoming basically outlaws, they took up residence in a remote coastal cave and found survival to be even harder in the harsh wilderness than it was before. And I guess drastic times call for drastic measures, because they would rob all people unlucky enough to come across them. The only problem was they had no way of spending their stolen loot with Agnes being wanted for witchcraft and all. So starvation seemed imminent as their food supplies ran low. This is when Agnes convinced Alexander that there was a way out of their predicament. And that night they murdered for the first time, then feasted upon the victim's flesh. There were rumors that Agnes had consumed flesh and performed human sacrifices among the villagers before they fled from civilization. If these rumors were true, then it wouldn't have been the first time the witch had prepared a human for dinner before. Nonetheless, after this vile act, the two were bonded by their gruesome deed and there was no turning back. The Bean Clan would grow quickly as Alexander and Agnes got busy often. To the point, she was pregnant almost every year or so for quite some time. They had six daughters and eight sons together. But being cannibalistic outcasts, they had no new blood to pull genes from. So the Bean children resorted to incest to quell their sexual desires. This would lead to 18 incestuous grandchildren, whom would also breed among their siblings. In total, the whole Bean clan growing to around 48 members strong. And that's a lot of mouths to feed. But for 28 years, the Bean clan survived off passing travelers by robbing, killing, then butchering them callously. However, eventually people did start to notice the massive amount of missing people and began to question the sources of these mysterious vanishings. Though the beans were always careful and staged many of their murder scenes to look like an animal attack, the numbers were just growing too high to dismiss. Not only that, but the clan needed so much flesh to feed their brood that they had difficulty disposing of their victims' remains and made the mistake of throwing them into the sea. These bodies eventually and inevitably began to wash up on shore which greatly alarmed the villagers nearby even more than they already were. Unrest grew among the village as the people assumed that there were dangerous outlaws along the coast. The area was thoroughly searched, but somehow the Bean clan avoided detection. Very aware that they were being searched for, the Bean clan rationed their meat and stuck to their cave until the searches died off. With no bandits to blame after the failed investigation, the law found scapegoats to pin the murders on, and hung innocent men to calm the restless villagers. Soon after, though, the beans would just leave their cave to feed once more, and the killings would begin all over again. But the killer cannibal family's luck would eventually take a turn for the worst. After a festival, a young man and his wife walked along the coast back to their home. It was a busy time with the festival and all, so... There was much more traffic going through the area than usual. The cannibals descended on the couple and managed to kill the man's wife because of the surprise attack. However, the man was very skilled in combat, 
surviving the initial assault and even managing to pull out his sword to defend himself. The beings who killed his wife dragged her body away from the conflict and actually began butchering her within sight of her husband. This drove the man into a vengeful rage and inspired him to bring retribution to the incestuous cannibals even more. Somehow the man fought the beans off long enough for more villagers walking home from the festival to notice, and the opposing numbers grew too great for the beans so they fled back to their cave. And with the villagers now very aware of the killer family, a party of 400 men with hounds led by the king himself went out searching for him. It didn't take long for the hounds to get the scent of the beans who killed the man's wife at the scene of the murder, and the dogs led the search party right to the cave where the family lived. What they found within was basically a nightmare made real. There were pickled jars of their victim's body parts, and bones basically spread throughout everywhere on the floor, along with the belongings of the dead. And the cave was decorated in gore and filth that made the Christian villagers' stomachs turn. There was art made in human blood all around, and a stench like a sewer was thick in the air. Basically, a real-life horror movie. After a short but bloody struggle, Alexander saw his family stood no chance against the search party's numbers, so they surrendered to the king and were led away from the cave in chains. What was left of the cannibal family was taken to the toll booth in Edinburgh, where they were executed. For their crimes, the family suffered a well-deserved but horrible fate. The men were castrated, then had their hands and feet cut off in plain sight of the women and children. They were left there in front of them to bleed to death slowly while the crowd jeered and taunted them. Then, after all the men were dead, the women and children were taken to be burned alive at the stake, thus ending the horrifying legacy of the killer cannibal family of Scotland. Famed horror director Wes Craven said this gruesome tale greatly inspired him when he wrote his horror movie, The Hills Have Eyes, and has actually gone on to inspire a bunch of other horror movies too. The killer cannibal family is a terrifying theme in the horror genre, like legendary films such as The Texas Chainsaw Massacre, The Wrong Turn series, The Devil's Rejects, Ravenous, Bloodlines, and many more. It's very unsettling cannibal serial killer families is an actual thing in the real world. But truth is always stranger than fiction. Hey listeners, thanks for listening to Cryptic Chronicles. Are you interested in starting your own podcast? Please support the show by using our sponsor, Blueberry. Blueberry is optimized for iTunes, as well as pretty much all podcast hubs. Don't worry about contracts or expensive fees. You have your own RSS feed and no third-party sites. You won't ever have to leave your own website. Blueberry hosting really is the key to podcast success. Try it for a month free and a month of free podcast statistics by going to crypticchroniclespodcast.com. At the bottom of the homepage, you'll see the Blueberry link. By going through us, you'll really be helping us out. Also, make sure to support the show by joining the Chronicler's Vault. By supporting us on Patreon, you'll have access to exclusive bonus episodes. The more financial support we get, the more content we can produce. Anything will help, so if you can't afford the Chronicler's Vault, simply donate whatever you can, and we would greatly appreciate it. Go to crypticchroniclespodcast.com and click the donation button on the bottom of the homepage. To keep up to date with all Cryptic Chronicles content, follow us on Twitter, Tumblr, or our Facebook page. 
throwing the Facebook page a like would also be very awesome. Thank you for supporting Crypto Chronicles. Most of all, thanks for listening. And next up, we have a old school, pretty legendary ghost tale. The Brown Lady of Rainham Hall from 18th century Norfolk, Great Britain. In life, she was known as Lady Dorothy Walpole, sister of Robert Walpole, who is known as the first prime minister of Great Britain. Dorothy was unfortunate enough to become the second wife of the powerful Viscount Charles Townshend II. He was born into high-class British society and pretty used to privilege. Charles had basically everything handed to him. He was basically the epitome of the upper class 1%, so calling him spoiled would be an understatement. And he developed a notoriously violent temper as he grew into a man. He loved and hated quickly with his passions guiding his actions. And the man never changed his mind once it was made, no matter how ridiculous. After Lady Dorothy and the Viscount got married, she was pretty much mistreated and neglected off the bat. And it got so bad for her, she basically just started looking for love elsewhere. But somehow Charles found out about it, and his ego could not stand his wife being drawn to another man, so... You can guess where this is going. Dorothy became a prisoner in her own home. She was imprisoned in a secluded room, all alone. Unable to even see her own children or interact with the outside world ever again in any way. Eventually, Dorothy died in 1726, though the reason of her death raised many eyebrows. Supposedly, she died from smallpox, but most believed she was either murdered or committed suicide. The entire latter part of Lady Dorothy's life was spent in lonely isolation and eternal frustration at her helplessness under her husband's cruel punishment. A hundred years went by with Lady Dorothy becoming nothing but a fleeting memory, but it is around this time that Rainham Hall's legendary ghost activity really comes into prominence. Her restless spirit couldn't pass on, and one fateful night she made her presence known. There was a Christmas party at Rainham Hall in 1835, Many nobles and high-ranking members of British society enjoyed the festivities of the holiday, until one guest said they saw something unreal. A military man by the name of Colonel Loftus said that on the way to his room late in the night, he was approached by a grisly specter of a woman walking the hall with an outdated frayed brown dress. Her face seemed to glow with otherworldly light, and her eyes were just hollow sockets. Later, another man named Hawkins said he'd seen the etheric woman too, and that it chilled him to the bone. The very next night, Colonel Loftus encountered the entity again, but this time when he spoke of the encounter, it was just too much for the guests. Many left Rainham Hall that very day, and some staff even put in their resignation, never returning. The worn brown dress that the ghost is described as wearing is obviously the source of the ghost's name, and one of Britain's most famous ghost legends was born. Only a year passed before the next sighting of Lady Dorothy's apparition. Captain Frederick Marriott 
an author and officer in the Royal Navy, wanted to debunk the alleged ghost sighting, which had been the hot topic of the upper class for some time. He was completely skeptical. The captain did have a theory, though, that the whole thing was made up by smugglers in the area to keep people away so that they could conduct their nefarious activities. He even asked to stay in the room that Dorothy died in, where a painting of her hung on the wall. For some reason, the captain slept with a loaded pistol under his pillow, but otherwise basically seemed pretty much unfazed by the whole thing. He slept in the room for two nights with uh, nothing unusual occurring. At that point, pretty much thinking that his staying there had proved the ghost sighting a hoax, at least in his own mind. But on the third night, the nephews of the Baroness who owned Rainham Hall came to the captain's room and asked if he wished to inspect a new gun they'd received from London. He agreed to even though he had been preparing for bed and was in his undergarments. The captain took his pistol with him jokingly, saying he better bring it just in case they ran into the brown lady. Then he followed the young man from his room. It was a late night, and the majority of the people at the estate had already retired to their rooms for sleep. The hallways were pretty dark, and on the way back, the hall was only lit by a single candle. The two nephews accompanied him, laughing about how they would protect Captain Frederick from the brown lady. As the three men walked down the hall, they spotted a lamp coming their way and the figure of a woman. And remember, the captain was in his undergarments, basically his underwear, and this was like a more prudish, modest age. So not wanting to freak the girl out, the captain hid in the archway before a room and the two nephews followed his lead. They pretty much just hid there silently as the woman grew closer and closer. When she was close enough, her etheric nature became apparent which really freaked out the three men. Panicked, the captain actually jumped out in front of her, and there she was. The apparition wore a tattered brown dress, and her twisted face glowed white with hollowed eye sockets. The entity just stood there and grinned at the captain demonically. The captain was pretty overcome with fear, but he managed to lift his pistol, and he shot the apparition right in the face. For some reason, this caused the specter to instantly vanish right before the three men's eyes. Captain Frederick then left Raynham Hall that very night and refused to ever step foot in it again. But the three men would all go on to tell the tale to a lot of people, basically everyone they met, spreading the legend even further. There would be a lot of random sightings of the brown lady for basically another century and few would ever dare to stay in her former room. In 1936, photographers for Country Life magazine visited the secluded estate. They took pictures of the house and the grounds outside, but inside, when they were taking pictures of the staircase, a photographer noticed otherworldly white wisps beginning to descend from the top of the stairs. It formed into a woman in a brown dress, the photographer then took a picture and one of the most famous ghost photos in the world was taken. The picture was even released to the public in a best-selling issue of the magazine back in 1937, but it was actually the last reported sighting of the Brown Lady of Rainham Hall. If you want to check the picture out for yourself, just go look at the show notes, I'll post it there for you. 
Most people have at least heard of the legend of the Bermuda Triangle. Hundreds of people have gone into the triangle only to vanish. The anomalous location's popularity really began to blow up all the way back in 1950. It was all because of a series of articles that were published in many U.S. newspapers, which talked about all the plethora of unexplained disappearances that happened in the area. And because the authors gave no reason for the vanishings, it made the public's imagination go wild on the subject. More than 50 ships and 20 airplanes vanished into nothing in the 20th century alone with Flight 19 probably being one of the most famous and well-documented incidents. It was an Air Force training mission that was on a completely routine flight and was led by a man named Captain Taylor, who was a very experienced pilot. But what most people don't know is that the Bermuda Triangle is actually just one of many such anomalous locations across the planet. A Scottish biologist by the name of Ivan Terence Sanderson was the first to coin the term the vile vortices. Sanderson actually concluded that there were 12 such locations across the world, with the Bermuda Triangle just being the most famous. Strange, unexplainable phenomena has happened within these anomalous locations all throughout recorded history, and has generated countless legends across the planet. While most of these vile vortices are at sea, there are actually a few found on land. But all these locations have been host to a myriad of vanishings. And there has been a lot of uh, imaginative speculation on these mysterious places. Like the vortices being gateways to other dimensions or locations of hidden extraterrestrial bases on Earth. Others take a more mundane approach claiming the vortices to be locations of dense electromagnetic energy, or some even claim them to be hot spots upon the ley lines of the planet. The only objectivity on the subject is that they remain unexplained to this very day. So I'm going to present to you a brief overview of all these vortices as well as some of the lore surrounding them. These anomalies are located all along the planet's grid. Five are in the Tropic of Cancer, and five are in the Tropic of Capricorn. The last two are located at the North and South Pole, respectively. Together, they all form into an icosahedron, a 20-faced polyhedron, geometric form. For anyone familiar with sacred geometry, this may have some relevance to them. And oddly enough, when mapping out this planetary grid and comparing it to geography from history... Many famous monuments and ancient civilizations are found on the same ley lines that connect to each and every one of the vile vortices. Which makes many wonder if there's things concerning the Earth our ancestors knew that is lost to us in modern times. Mohenjo-Daro is the first vile vortex I'm going to go over. It's considered to be one of the world's first major cities, with some believing it to be allegedly founded around the 26th century BCE. It's located in modern-day Pakistan and is one of the most epic achievements of the Indus Valley civilization. Seriously, these people were creating wonders not seen again for thousands upon thousands of years. These monumental architectural achievements could rival Mesopotamia or even Egypt. But when the city was found in the 20s, it actually came with a pretty ominous discovery. 
All throughout the city were skeletal remains of people in contorted positions, which is pretty objective evidence for violent and painful deaths. In ancient times, the city's population seems to have been massacred, which is pretty interesting considering that archaeologically, the Indus Valley civilization fell suddenly without any explanation, though the lack of weapons found near these skeletons has led some to question this theory and caused people to speculate that, you know, these people died of disease or some kind of natural disaster like flooding. Though these theories are pretty highly doubted. And despite all the research, there are no mainstream theories satisfactory on how the people actually died that lived there. But I do enjoy the fringe speculation. David Davenport, a researcher of the site and author of the book Atomic Destruction in 2000 BC, has a more alternative view on how the people of Mohenjo-Daro met their doom. There were many objects found within the ruins that seemed to be fused together from heat that would have to be at least 1500 degrees Celsius to do so, as well as melted bricks only from a single direction. One of the skeletons brought to a lab for research from Mohenjo-Daro had 50 times the radiation level normally found in a human body, and the only known weaponry that causes devastation in the manner found at Mohenjo-Daro is atomic which is both really out there, but still pretty interesting. There's definitely a fascinating tale concerning this fallen ancient city that we will never know about. The next vile vortex is the North Pole, and it's actually pretty tame concerning unexplained phenomena and vile vortices. Probably because nobody lives there and it doesn't get much traffic. Though it does still have its disappearances. Like in 1845, when an expedition of 129 men from England were lost there without a trace. They were found 150 years later. The evidence of their demise was grisly to say the least. The party of explorers had to resort to cannibalism to survive, and there were other signs of violent fatalities. Also, modern legends suggest that the lost city of Atlantis is frozen under the ice of the North Pole. However, this vile vortex is not the only one to make that claim. But there is a lot of strange stuff out there on the North Pole. There's two groups of people who believe that there's an opening there. Like an opening on the surface. A giant one. The flat earth believers and the hollow earth believers. In some circles, this opening is believed to be a portal to another dimension or even the Garden of Eden mentioned in the Bible. Some flat earthers say it leads to Agartha a divine realm, and a higher state of consciousness. With future technology, we shall explore the North Pole more thoroughly, and many suggest the discoveries could shock humanity to its very core. Number three on this list is the vile vortex called the Wharton Basin. Located off the coast of Australia, this particular vile vortex had an 8.6 magnitude earthquake back in 2012 which decimated the surrounding area and was unprecedented for an interplate earthquake. This is also the area where the Malaysian airline plane vanished back in 2014. The Wharton Basin contains deep fractures where tectonic plates meet and has a massively high degree of seismic activity and rare geological events, as well as being home to a fault line. With many of these rare geological events never even occurring anywhere else on the planet, which explains why scientists are so keen on studying the Wharton Basin. 
But due to the remote nature of this vile vortex in the Indian Ocean, much of the unexplained phenomena that happens there has little documentation. And you've probably heard of the next vile vortex because it's pretty popular. Easter Island. Easter Island is filled with many mysteries. It's one of the most isolated islands on Earth that's had a human population. But this enigmatic location is world famous for its incredibly bizarre statues. There are 887 of these statues called Moe statues, which were created by the Rapa Nui people. The reason these massive human-like statues were created in the first place remains unknown. But there's a whole ton of theories regarding them. To me, they seem like something to do with their religion. However, the main contention is how these massive stone sculptures were moved. They weigh up to 82 tons and seems to be on the grasp of such a primitive culture. Not only to move it, but to even just create the massive stone artwork. In the 1980s, scientists tried to replicate how the statues could have been moved using only tools known to exist at the time, and it proved to be literally impossible to do so. Rapa Nui folklore says the statues were animated by magic and moved on their own. So it's not clear why scientists just don't become wizards and move the stone statues with arcane power. There's also theories that the Moe statues were created by aliens. Or at least the Rapa Nui people were influenced by aliens to create them in the first place. I'm pretty convinced that the statues were just moved with ropes. Because I recently saw a YouTube video where people were literally doing that. They had a rope on each side and the front and they were just wiggling it back and forth and it was moving forward. Yeah, seeing's believing. Still, Easter Island is definitely a fascinating vile vortex with one of the most mysterious and enigmatically interesting people on Earth. And the fifth vile vortex is the Algerian megaliths. These ancient monoliths are a burial ground in northwest Africa located in the Sahara Desert. They were created by the Zing Empire, a civilization shrouded in mystery and legend, existing in the area long before recorded history. There is very little information on these people because they're just so ridiculously ancient. So ancient, it's basically impossible that they built something so advanced. It requires engineering skills just non-existent at that time in history. But they exist. Of the little things that actually is known about this area is that planes that fly over this vile vortex often vanish without a trace. Many believe that this is a curse from the dead that dwell at the monoliths. Though this being a vile vortex, the unexplained phenomena go far beyond mere disappearances. Electronics don't work correctly at the site, compasses spin in circles, and many who visit the location claim it has an aura of darkness about it, many claiming that it causes them to have an ever-present anxiety. In the past, people who journeyed into this area of the Sahara Desert and didn't return were said to be the victims of supernatural jinn, the desolate places of the earth being the main home of these entities. Disrespecting or messing around with any of the monolithic burial grounds is rumored to bring lifelong bad luck and an early death. The next vile vortex is the Dragon's Triangle, which we've talked about on the show before in a vault episode. It's also called the Devil's Sea. The Dragon's Triangle is located near Japan and has an insane amount of strange occurrences. Literally countless ships have vanished while going through it, 
and UFO sightings are pretty abundant there too. The Japanese have a dense collection of folklore surrounding the triangle, but it's what's found underneath the waters that's truly fascinating. The Dragon's Triangle is home to the famous Yonaguni Monument. The underwater city's been called Japan's Atlantis. It's a massive city made with huge stone slabs that were cut into perfect 90-degree angles. It also has sophisticated walls, steps, and columns. But sadly, this civilization has been lost to time, and there's next to no information on it. Though the architectural achievements are astonishing for any age in history, and allegedly this sunken city is over 10,000 years old, Ships and planes have always vanished into nothing there, to the point the Japanese government has even labeled the site a disaster area to be avoided at all costs by law. Seriously. The dark legends that surround the Devil's Sea go back all throughout Japanese history. Metallic objects have been said to rise out of the water only to zoom out of sight at astonishing speeds. There's been a lot of USO sightings here. If you're unfamiliar with what a USO is, it's an unidentified submerged object. And according to legend, winged monsters are said to rise from the waves and take flight. In some legends, sea monsters even come up to the surface that breathe fire. So this vile vortex is pretty much one of the most active spots for unexplained phenomena. If you want to know more about the Dragon's Triangle, check out the Vault episode entitled Prehistory Advanced Civilizations. Next is Hamakulia, and a lot of strange and paranormal phenomena occurs within this Hawaiian vile vortex, with the strange occurrences mainly focusing around the revered volcano of Hamakulia. But the actual location of this vile vortex is off the coast of Hawaii, out in the ocean. The source of the vortex's power is believed to come from the Hamakulia volcano on the southeast side of Kauai. The lava from the volcano travels underneath mainland Hawaii and underneath the ocean floor to a place called the Ring of Fire, which is a group of underwater volcanoes, and all this lava flows directly through the vile vortex. Numerous planes and ships have vanished without a trace in the area, which I guess is a trademark of all the vile vortices, but also strange electrical energy flows throughout the region. Rocks on the volcano randomly become magnetized, which is pretty weird complete with the spinning compass and things of that nature. The locals of Hawaii have a long and colorful folklore surrounding Hamakulia, and they treat the volcano with utter reverence. The next vile vortex is the New Hebrides Trench, which is a massive trench with depths of 25,000 feet in the southwestern Pacific Ocean. In the dark depths of the trench, scientists have discovered a species of immensely large eels, among other unique life forms in the bitter, cold darkness. This is one of the deepest trenches on Earth. The farther explorers went down, the creatures became more and more alien-like. However, the New Hebrides Trench is actually one of the more tame vile vortices. It has the anomalous electromagnetic activity that's basically the calling card of all the vortices, but this vortex also has a low body count. Unlike a lot of the other locations I'm talking about, there's also no UFO sightings or unexplained weather or a lot of the other things that are strange and bizarre that surround the vortices. 
and the next vile vortex takes us to Zimbabwe. Known as the Zimbabwe megaliths, built around 900 years ago, these massive stone structures have held up quite well and are still very impressive till this day. The entire complex spans almost 1,800 acres, which for a monolith so ancient is an astounding feat to say the least. Estimates say it took around 300 years to build and was home to a population of 18,000 people at its height. But then, all of a sudden, the entire settlement was abandoned for mysterious reasons. Many speculate about what it might have been, but there really isn't anything to work with. There's no objective reason as to why the Zimbabwe megaliths were left to become a ghost town. Archaeological evidence doesn't really suggest violence or anything of that nature either. It's like one day the settlement's inhabitants just all vanished. Like all vile vortices though, strange phenomena happens here often. But sadly the folklore that surrounds the site has been lost to the passage of time. The next vile vortex is pretty interesting. It's, <laughs> I guess it's very different than the rest of them. It's called the South Atlantic Anomaly. The South Atlantic Anomaly is a place on Earth where the natural radiation from the planet is out of control. This is because the Earth's inner radiation belt actually comes closest to the surface in this particular area of the globe. It creates a flux of energetic particles that permeate from the planet to the point satellites are exposed to much higher levels of radiation than they're used to when orbiting around, and crafts that fly over it suffer from the high levels of radiation. Interestingly enough, astronauts who look outside while passing over it have claimed to have strange hallucinations that they term cosmic ray visual phenomena. The Hubble telescope is unable to take pictures while passing over the anomaly, and the International Space Station spent billions in high-tech shielding to protect them from the bombardment of radiation. Basic electronics don't work when space shuttles pass over it, costing all spacefaring nations an insane amount of money and damages. There's also many plane vanishings in the area. In one case, a French Airbus of 330 people disappeared without a trace while flying over the anomaly. Some people who believe in more out there stuff believe that this is one of the vile vortices that opened the door to another dimension, and all ships and planes lost there have actually crossed over into another plane of existence. And we're getting there, almost done with all these vile vortices. The next vile vortex is the South Pole. The Antarctic has a population of around 4,000 people. Most of the population are just researchers or scientists. Despite this, there's never really been any scientific explanation for the area's odd occurrences. Antarctica has for a long time now been suspected of housing ancient civilizations beneath its ice including the theory that it's actually Atlantis buried underneath the inhospitable surface. It's a pretty popular theory. There's a famous mound in the shape of a pyramid. Well, allegedly a pyramid. Some researchers are adamant that the pyramid was man-made, and indeed, it doesn't seem to look like a natural formation. It's unfortunate with our current level of technology that Antarctica can't really be explored in a manner useful to discovering the truth to these mysteries. Still, many claim that one day when we're able, humanity will discover an entire lost civilization under the ice. Pop culture actually latched onto this idea a long time ago. Anyone familiar with H.P. Lovecraft knows that the accounts of his book 
at the Mountains of Madness, takes place in the chilling continent of Antarctica. And let's face it, if you're into Cryptic Chronicles, you're probably into H.P. Lovecraft, too. In the tale, human explorers come across the remnants of a pre-human alien civilization, encountering horrors that drives them to insanity. There have been countless disappearances and unexplained phenomena to happen at this vile vortex, and a plethora of bizarre deaths. Alright, on to the twelfth and final vile vortex, the Bermuda Triangle. Also called the Devil's Triangle, this vile vortex needs no introduction, I assume. It's infamous across many cultures and easily the most well-known of all the vile vortices. Countless ships, planes, and even entire fleets have vanished without a trace in this ominous triangle off the coast of Florida. Really, an astonishing number of people have journeyed out into the triangle, never to return. I mean, even recently, on May 15th, 2017, a plane vanished in the triangle that carried the CEO of Skylight Group, which is a pretty big corporation. Some say the vanishings are because of an anomalous form of methane gas since the area sometimes becomes so foggy out of nowhere, making it impossible to see. Some say it's because of aliens who live in an underwater base beneath the triangle, and of course there's those who claim it to be a portal to another dimension. And this is yet another vile vortex where many claim that the lost city of Atlantis resides sunken beneath the ocean, and the unexplained phenomena in the area occurs because of crystal technology lost at the bottom of the sea. The only objective thing anyone can really say about the Bermuda Triangle is to not go there if you value your own life. that's all for today. I kind of got sick during making this episode, so sorry if you can tell. And sorry for it putting me behind schedule. I'm going to try really hard to get out a good Halloween episode, even though I'm running out of time. Anyway, thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time. <laughs>